Pulp Fiction covers themes that may not be suitable for all listeners. Episodes may feature true events tied into fictional stories. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Story 1 of Pulp Fiction, a podcast by Public. This is Salt Creek, Episode 9. When the couple reached the Torrens, two things were apparent. The first was a young man pulling himself along the gravel path, one of his legs dragging behind him with a bent ankle that made the woman, Anne, cringe. She walked over to the man and crouched down. What happened? You okay? She asked. Don't be stupid, woman. Of course he's not. People don't drag themselves along the ground for a morning stroll. The man, named Brian, snapped before crouching down next to Roger. We're going to get help. Stay with Ant. I'll go in. Brian stopped talking, noticing the two figures on the far bank of the river, one laying on top of the other. Shit, thought Brian. This can't be good. He turned back to Anne and barked. Go and get help. Again at the hospital, Kathy skimmed through the doctor's questions during her final assessment, responding to each with simple, clear answers. She was no longer interested in being there. In fact, it was starting to make her angry. The weeping families, gossiping nurses, and consistent beeps. What she really wanted to be doing was researching John Bunting to find out if what she had witnessed was actually real. And if so, how she had seen it, known it with with such clarity. It's real, Kathy heard. She shook her head, not sure whether she'd heard it from the doctor or thought it up herself. Sorry, um, did you did you just say something? Kathy asked the doctor. He was young, probably a trainee. I said, it's really important for you to take care of yourself. Us first responders are exposed to some heavy trauma, he repeated. Oh, yeah, sorry, I I misheard you. Thank you, Kathy said. Leaving the emergency section, she began making her way to ICU to see how Corey was doing. She approached a lady at the ward's reception desk, whose blonde hair piled on top of her head and pink poodle-printed scrubs made her appear both friendly and approachable. Uh, excuse me, Kathy asked. I'm looking for Corey Graham. Is he still here? The nurse gave her a tight smile. She looked tired. Kathy wondered how long she'd been working. The nurse, whose name tag read Deborah, consulted a sheet on the desk and said, Yeah, he is. He's, he's right down this hall. She gestured with her hand. Room 12 is on the left. Thank you, Kathy said. 
The nurse returned the thanks with a large, worn smile, exposing all of her teeth. She had one tooth that stuck out that little bit too far. Kathy found herself picturing ripping that tooth out of her skull and shook her head. It had been a violent couple of days. Maybe that violence was starting to rub off on her. Back in Corey's vision, the first responders had just arrived. They were two police officers. One roughly five foot nine inches tall, with closely cropped light brown hair and heavily magnified glasses that made his eyes look too big for his face. He had thick, light brown stubble and strange manicured eyebrows. He walked up to Anne, who was still crouched beside Roger, while the other, a taller man with a paunchy belly and balding black hair, walked over to Brian, who was keeping an eye at the two men on the opposite side of the riverbank. The first introduced himself to Anne. Hi, I'm Constable Ian E. Palmer. Could you tell me what happened here, ma'am? He said. Anne was taken aback. While she was over the age of 35, she hardly considered herself a man. I, I can't tell you much, she began. My husband, Brian, over there, and I were out for our morning walk. We heard a commotion by the river, somebody yelling. When we got here, we found this man dragging himself away from the bank. We haven't been able to get to the other two yet, she said. Speaking so quickly, she began to worry she had glazed over a very important detail. Okay, said the officer, jotting down what Anne had said in a messy scrawl. He turned to the man who was now laying on his side, ankle askew and shivering from shock. What's your name, son? Can you tell me what happened? He asked. Wanting to give them some privacy, Anne stood up and walked over to where Brian was standing with the other police officer. Roger answered the questions open and honestly, recalling the events of the night from start to finish, including how they met at a popular beat, which was where the constables stopped taking notes. And... When they were out of the car, how somebody had grabbed him from behind, throwing him and George into the surging torrents, one after the other. Roger then asked, Is the ambulance going to get here soon? Constable Ian Palmer put his notepad back into his pocket, patted it, and said, The ambulance only comes for normal people, son. Not fags. Across the bank, Bevan began to stir. His head pounded and his body was aching from exertion. He rubbed his eyes and recoiled as he realised he had been using his dead friend as a pillow. He strained his mind, probing through his memories in an attempt to remember what happened to make him faint. He looked around, taking in the surging torrents and the people on the far bank. Police officers and two... Joggers? Bevan stood up. Waving frantically, he stumbled, falling back into the mud with a splat, before getting up again and calling out for help. He watched as a short, light brown-haired officer walked over to the taller, balding one, and said something to him, frantically gesturing with his hands and pointing at the younger man, who was still laying on his side on the gravel path. He had the feeling they wouldn't be able to reach him, not yet.
so he stood up and waded back into the water, heading back over to the other side of the river. Back at the hospital, Kathy stood over Corey's unconscious body, the blonde nurse standing beside her. What's what's wrong? Um, I mean, why hasn't he woken up yet? Kathy asked. We're not sure. We've done all the appropriate tests, bloods, x-rays, even an MRI. He's completely healthy, barely even a bruise from the fall, Deborah answered. Kathy responded with a long mmm, and Deborah took it as her cue to leave. Reaching down, Kathy gently picked up Corey's hand and looked at his face. He was wearing a peaceful expression. She couldn't help but contemplate that he was dreaming about something incredibly pleasant, something he enjoyed, sitting down to a feast maybe, spending time with his family. But what he was seeing was anything but pleasant. Reaching the other side of the torrents, Bevan felt a strong arm pulling him from the water. It was Brian, tall and muscular, with a kind face. Glad to see you kicking, he said, patting Bevan on the shoulder twice. Bevan nodded, his lips in a straight, solemn line. Thanks. He looked around himself at the police officers, who he saw walking up the gravel path, just past Roger. He broke into a run, sprinting after them. Hey, he yelled, where are you going? My friend is dead. Constable Ian turned around. The bald one continued walking away. His expression was crumpled, brows turned up at the ends. Angry. The coroner has been called. I suggest you take your other friend to the hospital. We're going to wait in the car, he said. Bevan could feel his blood pressure rising. A sudden throbbing he could feel from his chest to his temples. What? Why? He needs an ambulance. My friend was murdered. He screeched through gritted teeth. Your other friend, Roger, told us how you got into this mess. You'll deserve it if you ask me, responded Ian. The words hit Bevan like a slap in the face. He recoiled, trying to realise what the officer was actually saying. It all fell together. Roger must have told him the truth, and Bevan couldn't blame him, but the police weren't interested. They didn't like the gaze. Bevan balled his hands into fists and turned. As he walked back towards Roger, he shook his head. This wasn't right. None of this was right. None of this was fair. Hot, fat tears began rolling down his cheeks, the salty water carving clean lines through the dried mud on his face. Do something about it then, a voice whispered in Bevan's ear. Kathy was sitting in the back of a taxi on the way back to her office at the police station. She could barely believe so much had happened in one day, and even though she was tired, she felt overall that she was okay. She looked down at the dried blood on her skirt as she pondered what had happened to Corey, how it was that she had woken up so quickly, and how it was that he was still in hospital, unconscious, with no reason for being so. Her mind then flooded back to what she saw when she was out, 
Images and words flashed through our consciousness. The man being buried alive at Light River. Clinton Tracees. John Bunting and his flat tone and determination to kill. Snowtown. The bodies in the barrels. Carving on the tree. What was that word? Kathy pondered, hoping she'd be able to recall it, and whether it had a connection to what had happened in the cavern. Had it been the same word Lana had said? The recording. Alarm bells began to signal in Kathy's brain as she strained to remember the recording and wondered where Corey's phone was now, whether she could listen to it again. The taxi pulled up to the police station and Kathy paid, thanked the taxi driver, and walked in. A new sense of determination on her face. In what seemed like an unrealistic act of kindness for such an unkind day, Bevan and Roger had caught a ride back to George's car with Anne and Brian. The trip was silent aside from occasional sobs from Roger, whose broken ankle was sending burning shots of pain up and down his leg. Bevan was sitting beside him, seething with rage. He could barely understand their treatment, how the police, the very people meant to serve and protect, had dismissed himself from Roger, not to mention George's dead body. At that point, Bevan hadn't considered what he was actually doing with Roger and George. His own motivations for being at the beat. It wasn't fair, none of it, or because they were gay, but they weren't gay. But maybe Bevan was? He had struggled with it a long time, the urges. He'd been with women before, and he didn't hate the experience, but didn't really enjoy it either. Sex was something he had tolerated during his youth, something he felt he must do to participate and fit in with his friends. But something about it, the sounds, the sights, the feelings, the smells, all didn't do it for him. So over his 20s, sex was something that gradually faded out of his life. Brian pulled up to the lay-by where George's car was parked. The car was still there, thankfully. Bevan exited Brian's car and thanked them, then walked around, slinging Roger's arm around his shoulders. The pair hobbled to the car where, with some groaning, Bevan helped Roger in. You okay? Bevan asked Roger, firing up the engine. Not really. No. Responded Roger, his tone flat and even. The pair drove to the hospital in silence. Kathy had barely sat down at her desk when her superior, Superintendent James Domingo, approached her. James, or Jimmy, was a short, dark-featured man who spoke much too loud. Kathy had always assumed he was compensating for his lack of physical presence with his volume. Kathy, back already? Clapped his hands together and started rubbing them. I've been told something happened at the Coorong earlier today. Did you want me to connect you with the counsellor? He asked. James was wearing an expression of concern, but his volume made him sound excited. No, um... No, I, I'm okay, I think. I just wanted to get my reports in and maybe do a little bit of research while... while um, everything is fresh in my brain, Kathy responded. 
Thank you. I do appreciate the concern. Okay, well, if there's anything you need, just yell out, he said, again a little too enthusiastically. Actually, Kathy began. I know this one was a while ago, but are any of the inspectors from the John Bunting case still working? You know, Snowtown? I, I have a few questions I'd like to ask. James considered this for a second before answering. Why is that? I feel like this man, Roman, Roman Hines, may have done something like this before. I have a couple of questions around behaviour and potential similarities. You know, that kind of thing. Kathy responded. I'll look into it for you. There's probably one or two inspectors left over from the 90s. He gave her a wink and began turning away. Actually, James, uh, sorry, but has anyone brought back Corey's belongings from the Coorong? She asked. Nope, he responded. The technicians are still working. As you saw, it's a long, stretched out crime scene. Everything should be back by end of day tomorrow, he responded, before walking away. Kathy turned back to her computer and let out a big sigh, before opening a blank document and regurgitating every minute detail about what she saw when she was unconscious on the cabin floor. After helping Roger hobble into the hospital's emergency department, Bevan returned to George's car. He wasn't sure what to do next, where to go. He contemplated what he should do with the car. Return it to George's house, where he would potentially need to explain what had happened to his wife. Would she know already? Bevan wasn't sure, and he wasn't really interested in being the bearer of bad news at this point. He lit a cigarette, turned the radio up and began to drive. He had no destination in mind, so just let his hands guide him finding himself making turns and driving towards a destination without thinking. Before long, he found himself back where he started, driving down that same dirt track, dust billowing out from the maroon charger's rear tyres. He came to that toilet block, deserted in the daylight, aside from one other car, the same white Tirana. Bevan got out of the car, walked up to the toilets and leaned against the wall, his crotch sticking out that little bit too far, and began to wait. This, he mumbled to himself. This is the bait. To be continued. Thanks for listening. For more stories, visit www.thepublicbook.com or you can follow me on Twitter if you want. My handle is at DRopeKeyAuthor. Bye.